Catherine Glenn Foster, president and CEO of Americans United for Life, testified this week in the U.S. House of Representatives. She appeared before the Democrat-controlled House Committee on the Judiciary. The context was their inflammatory and tragically named Revoking Your Rights, the Ongoing Crisis in Abortion Care Access Hearings. Catherine was the sole pro-life witness. She was surrounded by pro-abortion activists. This was a key moment at this pivotal time in American history to witness for the human right to life and to speak on behalf of America's pro-life moms, dads, and families. We think Catherine did a great job, of course. We're going to hear her opening statements, and we're going to be joined today in conversation by Katie Glenn, AUL's Government Affairs Council, who was there on the scene, who's going to tell us all about it. I am Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. I am Tom Shakely, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Katie Glenn, Government Affairs Counsel at Americans United for Life. Katie, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be back. It is always such a pleasure to have you. Katie, you know, we should just right off at the top of the conversation here, we should celebrate you, uh, have the crown. You are the queen of life, liberty, and law. You have appeared on life, liberty, and law more consistently than anyone else at Americans United for Life. What's it like to be our most frequent and favored guest? I did not know that I was your most frequent favorite <laughs> guest. Wow. I have so many people to thank, right? <laughs> it is, it's been a lot of fun. I think you started this podcast right about the same time that I started with Americans United for Life three years ago. And I think it's been a great way for us to kind of debrief on all of the issues going on with the pro-life movement. And obviously for you to share the voices of so many great uh, friends in this fight. You know, that's right. It's uh, it's amazing. We are coming up on uh, three years since the, the program uh, started. It was July of 2019. Um, we hosted so many conversations with uh, Noah Brandt, our good friend, who is now uh, still in the, the pro-life fight uh, over with our friends at Live Action. And, uh, you know, there's, there's so much to do. I'm, I've been so impressed by the number of folks we've been able to talk to in this program. This is not going to be a conversation about the podcast uh, the whole time. We're going to get into the hearing in a second. But I do want to underscore... Uh, how great it's been to, to speak to so many people across the movement uh, and even some people who really uh, are kind of on the fence, uh, let's say, about the human right to life and the implications of that in law and policy, uh, to have some hard conversations and, and to kind of uh, walk through and document together what's going on in the United States in this changing time, uh, this this changing culture of ours, uh, as it appears now, uh, that we're kind of coming up to a pivotal moment when the Supreme Court, you know, the leak happened. We talked about that from the Supreme Court. It appears that the Supreme Court is likely going to reverse Roe v. Wade officially uh, in, in the final decision that they could announce any time now um, on the, the Mississippi case protecting uh, children at 15 weeks. We're going to see. But, Katie, today we're going to talk about uh, the U.S. House Judiciary Committee's hearing uh, I, you know, like, of course, you know, one party controls uh, these these hearings. 
Uh, and so right now the Democrats control the, the House of Representatives, and that means the Democrats control the House Judiciary Committee, which led to them uh, calling this hearing, right, and, and naming it. Uh, we mentioned revoking your rights, the ongoing crisis in abortion care, access. I love that modifier, access. It's sort of like you could just create any horrible phrase or idea and then just add like a nice word to the end and then you have like a good thing. Is like, is that the thinking there? What's going on? Well, they've got to get all their buzzwords in. And so sometimes it ends up being kind of silly or awkward phrasing like abortion care access. Are we talking about abortion care? Are we talking about abortion access? I guess we were talking about both. We didn't really know what we were talking about. And I think the, uh, the hearing really ran the gambit of topics for that reason. Yeah, so I guess let's let's start off uh, right before we get into you know what things were like on the ground. We should uh, take a moment. We're going to listen to Catherine Glenn Foster's opening statement uh, on the reality of abortion violence. We mentioned in the introduction, Catherine was the only pro-life witness again because of the dynamics of the House, because of the dynamics of of Congress right now in terms of democratically uh, uh, controlled uh, committees and and decision making about these hearings. That meant Catherine was the only person. Uh, who could really be permitted, uh, you know, to be called to to defend the human right to life, to speak for pro-life moms, dads, and families. Uh, the other three witnesses on this four-person uh, panel were all pro-abortion activists of various types. Um, and uh, and so in that sense, Catherine was outnumbered, um, but her opening statement, I think, was, was, uh, was articulate, it was forceful, uh, it was bold, it was courageous, and we're going to hear that now. We're here today because there is an ongoing crisis in America. The crisis we're confronting is abortion. Not abortion care, not abortion access, not abortion choice. No, we're here today because there is a crisis in America concerning abortion itself, full stop. We're approaching 65 million Americans dead from abortion. I know this firsthand. At 19, I aborted my first child. I felt emotional and psychological pressure to end my child's life. I was alone. So many voices in the culture lied to me. So many told me abortion was okay, was normal, was good even. I've lived with the regret of abortion every day of my life since. Abortion was damaging to me and deadly for my child. The truth is, abortion is always damaging and deadly. I understand that the other women on this panel today believe differently. I know their stories, and I've read their testimony. What is never addressed in their testimony is the simple reality of abortion violence. Abortion activism always requires euphemism and misdirection. Why? because of the violent nature of abortion, because it is, frankly, inconvenient. Human persons, from their earliest days, poisoned in the womb and dismembered, torn limb from limb. Bodies thrown in medical waste bins and in places like Washington, D.C., burned to power the lights of the city's homes and streets. Let that image sink in with you for a moment. The next time you turn on the light, Think of the incinerators. Think of what we're doing to ourselves so callously and so numbly. Always and everywhere, the convictions of pro-abortion activists are damaging, are deadly, and are devastating to the fabric of American democracy. 
to speak for the violence of abortion is to speak for injustice. There's no other way to put it. We once had allegedly serious citizens in America speak for slavery. Many fought and even died to perpetuate that injustice. It seems incredible to us today, but Americans can and will overcome the injustice of abortion, just as Americans did finally overcome the injustice of slavery. Indeed, we're here today because the U.S. Supreme Court appears to be finally on the verge of reversing Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Roe and Casey are widely regarded by legal scholars on the left and the right as the court's gravest and most profound mistakes since Dred Scott or Plessy. The future of America, a post-Roe America, is a future full of hope. Roe's reversal will make it possible for America's lawmakers to once again affirmatively protect the human right to life and to enshrine law and policy that makes abortion unthinkable for even those most vulnerable to abortion propaganda. Now, despite this historic moment, pro-abortion members of Congress recently voted to enshrine abortion in a more systemically unjust way even than Roe. Codifying Roe would threaten to invalidate state-informed consent protections. Codifying Roe would threaten to invalidate reflection periods, consumer telemed protections, state prohibitions against race or sex or genetic discrimination, and state laws protecting human persons at or before the point of viability. Nowhere do efforts to codify Roe into federal law mention either the child or the democratic will of the American people. Everything real about the mother and child evaporates into thin air. The American people, through their elected officials, recognize the need for basic oversight, for genuine informed consent, and for the interests of the child to matter. It is pro-abortion members of Congress who are out of step with the American people. It is a biological reality that a pre-born child is a member of the human family. We want a true constitutional order that equally protects all members of the human family. Even President Biden, despite being bought and paid for by corporate abortion money, acknowledged the truth earlier this month that at the center of every abortion is, and this is his word, a child. Abortion is fundamentally unjust. Abortion deprives our brothers and sisters of the equal protection of the laws. Abortion turns equals into unequals, it empowers the strong at the expense of the vulnerable, and it makes us all less human and less humane along the way. We must confront the violence of abortion and learn to live and thrive together. We are Americans. We are up to the challenge. We must confront the violence of abortion, and that can begin the moment we're willing to confront the reality of abortion. What did you think, Katie, being in the room there with Catherine and, and seeing it? Was, this was a full committee, right? I mean, w- paint the scene for us. What is this like? Yeah, so when you've got a full committee, it's a much bigger space. A lot more members are involved, um, you know, than when you're with a subcommittee and it's just a handful. So I think there is an element of, um, you know, attempting to intimidate the witnesses into you know, like the, the members are kind of bearing down on the witnesses. They're yeah. in this these kind of inquisitorial. Yeah. 
yeah, inquisitorial is such a good way, good way to describe it. Um, and you know, Catherine was just unafraid the whole time she sat there outnumbered on the panel and, and really kind of took heat all day long from a lot of the Democrats, uh, on that committee, but she never showed if she felt, uh, any type of concern about, you know, the numbers game that was being played against her. She looked cool, calm and collected the whole time. And, and it was really cool to get to be there um, and really see, see her in action and, you know, be there for some of those moments that went viral. Yeah. So, you know, and let's talk about that to the length of one of these hearings, right? You might think, you know, the opening statement there, that was about five minutes and change. Uh, and so you think, okay, there are four witnesses. So about 20 minutes there. And then I guess there are some questions asked. What that looks like in practice, though, is this was, you know, nearly a five hour event. Uh, you know, you can go look up the, you know, the House Committee on the Judiciary has got the full thing on YouTube. You can go stream it. Um, you can find it and the clips on C-SPAN. And, and there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of viral moments. There was um, a number of fascinating moments bo- on both sides of the aisle. Right. And so in a, in a context like this, right, the, the Democrats are generally going to because in general, they've decided to be uh, or, or uniformly, I guess, at this point, unfortunately, they've decided to be the party of abortion. Uh, they're they're generally asking questions of their witnesses, right? So it's sort of like a sort of like a series of back paddings or attaboys, right? It's like, why don't you tell me about how great abortion is? Is the kind of question that they're going to pose, right? It's either that or they're badgering Catherine in some way. I think one of the things you mentioned the length of time. I was explaining this to Hunter, my fiance, this morning. Actually, um, you know, he is a litigator, and so in trial. The witness goes up on the stand, they get asked some questions, and then they leave. And he said, well, how long did Catherine have to be there? And I was like, the whole time, five right, hours. Right. And he's like, no, but how long was she on the table? And I was like, the whole time, <laughs> five hours with one five-minute break. So it really is different from even you know what we think of as being a witness. You go up on the stand, you do your thing, you leave. When you are a witness before Congress, you know you are stuck at the table until every single member has had their say. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think you know I was I was frankly impressed you know because just just as a way the Democrats tended to focus so many of their questions on people who they knew would give abortion friendly responses. Um, you know, the Republicans did the same and they gave Catherine a lot of airtime uh, to really elucidate and unpack um, first a lot of the a lot of the claims, uh, a lot of the, um, you know, questionable uh, statements and, and outright um, falsehoods that, that we were hearing in terms of really the level of euphemism. You know, Catherine spoke about euphemism and misdirection in her opening statement. And that's really, that was kind of like one of the takeaways from the day, right? And, and we talk about that from the very opening um, line of the hearing, the name of the hearing, uh, abortion care access. And that's what was gone to uh, again and again by pro-abortion witnesses, um, whether abortion practitioners, um, in the case of somebody who's, who's performing abortions in her state, up to the very limit of what the law allows, uh, 20 weeks in her state, uh, and strongly implied, you know, it, she, that that she would go past twenty weeks if she were permitted by the law. Um, and, and then you've got other people who are kind of defending abortion on a more intellectual level, uh, attempting to. Um, and then you've got Catherine there uh, speaking for life. So fascinating yeah. to see those fireworks, right? 
Yes, definitely. There were some uh, some real aha moments, I think, in particular when uh, the abortion doctor said that she couldn't uh, say what a woman was, couldn't say what a human being was. Um, you know, this is a medical professional. She's not being asked to opine on this as an activist, but on what she learned in medical school. And I think that showed that abortion extrema, abortion extremism is, has this intensity that you cannot accept any limit or any reason why it wouldn't be acceptable to do an abortion. Like it is abortion over everything with no limits, with no regulation. And they are unable to even say things like a baby outside of the womb, you know, should be also protected (laughs) or, you know, yeah, they can't can't explain the difference. Like uh, Congressman Johnson from Louisiana, uh, he said, what is the difference between the eight inches of the birth canal? And nobody could answer that question except for Catherine. There is no difference. Right. And exactly. And that was like that was one of those most telling moments where he's asking precisely that question. of What, what separates uh, the human person, the baby, the child uh, from the, its state in utero through the birth canal and then out? Uh, right. And it's like, why why does the child suddenly gain protections then? You know, a lot of times you'll hear pro-abortion folks say that, you know, uh, in effect, human rights begin with the first breath. And, you know, it's like, OK, uh, why? You know, that's that's not in itself an, an obvious or intuitive baseline to confer human rights on someone. First breath. I mean, you know, some people stop breathing for some period of time. Some people need a ventilator. Are their human rights in some way compromised? And so people put out those kind of ideas of, you know, oh, well, once they emerge uh, and, and are born into the world, then they're protected, maybe, unless they need medical care, in which case sometimes they can be essentially exposed or neglected fatally, uh, a la Governor Ralph Northam's infamous comments from a few years ago. But it's simply a claim that can't be answered. It's a claim. It's, it's, a, it's a philosophical perspective uh, or an intellectual position. Oh, you get your rights when you take your first breath. Uh, that's that's that folks act as if it is a, a self-explanatory, self-unpacking statement or position or legal basis, and the, it's just it's just a non-starter, right? It doesn't make any sense as the reason that that would be where to begin, rather than as folks like Dr. Maureen Condick state uh, in her academic papers, where she goes through the very basis. You know, we we use phrases often like like fertilization or con- or, or conception. And we say this is the beginning of life, but you know what does that mean? And Maureen Condick is so great because she goes into the the science of it, the embryology, and, and what leads to the human embryo's formation, and she pinpoints the precise moment. So it's like when we're talking about conception or fertilization, we're talking about the specific, distinct, scientifically knowable moment of sperm egg fusion. Right? That's what sex leads to. Is, is the possibility of sperm-egg fusion. And when they fuse, that's the moment a human life begins scientifically, medically. That's the moment when a uni- unique human person comes into existence, forming unique DNA, forming a unique destiny and trajectory through the course of normal human development that then emerges eventually out of the birth canal, right, and into the world when they take their first breath uh, and eventually until they take their last natural breath, we hope. And, and that's a human lifetime. Uh, but it's precisely those sorts of realities that were obfuscated 
through that nearly five hours of hearings. People don't want to talk about these realities, uh, except for Catherine, thankfully, right? Yeah, Roe was decided to create this right to abortion because the justices said so. The parties in the case never even submitted briefs on the substantive questions like, when does life begin? What makes the human being a human being? What gives them legal rights under our laws at the state or federal level? None of those things were addressed because the parties came to the court on a standing issue. Who could file a lawsuit? And then we got this decision because the justices said so. And that has been the logic of the pro-abortion movement since then, is it is because we say it is. You become a human at birth because we say you're a human, not based on any biological reality, which when a human sperm and a human egg fuse, we get another human, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> that is <laughs> basic sex ed. <laughs> but because under our laws, apparently in some states, it requires breath or traveling down the birth canal to make you human under the law, not in reality, not through science, but because of the law. And that's why they are so terrified of Roe v. Wade being overturned. Because they have been basing this entire ideology, an ideology that has led to the death of almost 65 million American babies, by the way, on the fact that there is this mysterious discovered right to abortion in the Constitution. All of that is based on this right. If that right goes away, if they can no longer say it is because they said it was in 1973, what will it be based on? Exactly. Exactly. And this is, it is sophistry, right? By definition, it's, it's sounds philosophical. It sounds legal and judicial. It sounds intellectual, but it's sophistry. It's, it's purely language meant to deceive, meant to confuse. Uh, and the court, the court is, uh, seemingly ready to confront that issue finally. But, you know, uh, Americans United for Life uh, and Catherine Glenn Foster, right, in, in speaking at the hearing, um, is, is speaking for a future where all of us can thrive together. That's what we're owed. You know, we often hear, um, you know, right now the preferred marketing language from Planned Parenthood at their rallies and so forth is bans off our bodies. Uh, and we also, you know, know of... Uh, tried and true pro-abortion language, like my body, my choice. Uh, but in helping uh, the Americans realize, uh, number one, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. We're a nation. That means that we're in community with one another, in states and, and in towns, literally in communities, right? And in families, we have a responsibility to one another. And as Catherine said in some of her comments during the Q&A, Every abortion story is in some way the story of a woman uh, and a family context, a woman who's been let down, been let down by people who should have walked with her. Uh, but then she felt, for whatever reason, led to having only one option, right? And that's why it's not even a choice at the end of the day. It's, it's never a choice to well, be in a Planned abortion, Parenthood. The abortion industry seeks to isolate women. Because if you are alone in this decision, if you are not asking the baby's father, your partner, if you're not asking your parents, 
his parents, your family, your friends, your church community, your school community, all of these connections we have in our lives. If none of those people can help you because none of them know you're pregnant, then abortion really is going to feel like the only option. That's why the industry wants her to be alone. They say your body, your choice, your problem. And we heard that language from several of the Democrats. We heard it from uh, Representative Swalwell from California, who said things like, my wife chose to carry our children to term as if he had no say. And if she had wanted an abortion, that would have been perfectly fine. He would not stand up for the lives of his three children. I find it hard to believe that's true. And I think it's a real like, you know, example of how this abortion debate distorts people's values and even the language they use. We heard it from Representative Dean, who blamed was Catherine yeah. for her abortion, which was just disgusting. From my home state it of Pennsylvania, all, unfortunately. Yes, it is all about getting her alone, having it be her problem, hers alone, and she's to blame if she later regrets her abortion. And we just completely reject that. We are looking at a world where our interconnectedness is what makes us human, not what makes us a problem for other people. Yeah, no, that's so right. And, you know, Representative uh, Madeline Dean, um, who's, again, from Pennsylvania, the 4th Congressional District uh, outside of Philadelphia, she spoke near the very end when when literally Catherine was uh, increasingly alone in the room. Um, most of the members at this point had departed the hearing. This was literally the final, I think, you know, 10 minutes or so, 10 or 15 minutes of the hearing. And, you know, uh, it's, it's like it, it, the, the tone shifted as Dean gets up to speak. And she sort of initially offers some conciliatory remarks. I'm kind of paraphrasing here again. You can go watch this whole thing on YouTube if you want to look it up. Um, but... You know, she says in effect sort of like, you know, Catherine, thanks for your courage in being here today. Uh, and then comes in with the kind of knife to the throat moment uh, and says, you know, it, essentially what, what Dean is doing is just uh, it's just misogyny, incredibly uh, coming from her as a, as a, as a woman legislator uh, saying, you know, you had your choice. Now, I'm sorry you regret it, but you had your choice. And, and so she's prioritizing choice as a matter of the, of the law rather than whether the law is conformed to anything that's good for people who are forced into thinking this is their only option. It was an outrageous moment. And tellingly, it was done literally when Catherine was alone because most of the Republican members, most of the pro-life members had left the room at that point. And it was Catherine with three pro-abortion activists sitting at the same table, at the, at the witness table, so to speak, with basically only Democrats left in the room. And Dean went in for what she thought would be a kill but you can see on Catherine's face the pain and the hurt. You know, she wasn't allowed to speak because Dean didn't actually ask her any questions. She just sort of grandstanded uh, and blamed Catherine essentially for her own feelings of regret, uh, marginalizing all of those who have felt pressured to abort for whatever reason, who've ended there as their only option, or who've been victimized, who've been trafficked. And she blamed the victims, Madeline Dean. It was, it was just a, such a tragic moment. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the reasons that we at AUL have been so steadfast and, and state lawmakers and members of Congress all over the country who are pro-life have been so steadfast in saying our focus is on the law-breaking doctors or non-doctors. It's not on the woman. 
The woman needs help. Precisely. She needs support. We are going to walk with her. We are not blaming her or penalizing her because we know that so many so many women are victims of abuse, of rape, of horrific situations, of trafficking. Um, you know, there is the video showing uh, girls and women to Planned Parenthood by their pimps. They need our support. Every woman in that situation is being failed by somebody and sometimes by lots of somebodies. Yeah, and that's right. I think that Rep Dean was just one more person who was failing women on Wednesday. So let's talk about something else. You know, Catherine mentioned in her opening statement, uh, she talked about uh, bodies thrown in medical waste bins uh, and, and places where uh, this leads to human remains uh, paraphrasing, being uh, incinerated, sometimes for a power generation. Now, this is one of those things that you hear and, and you know, it kind of sticks with you. I know it stuck with me. And you think, gosh, what does that mean? What does that look like? Uh, I mean, for me, you know, the, it conjures up, right, an image um, of just the most horrific type of the, of the sort of, of crimes uh, that defined the wars of the last century. Uh, and, you know, this has been something that, you know, Slate, ran a hit piece against Catherine about this, uh, you know, kind of mocking the idea of, you know, oh, they're saying that, you know, fetuses are powering the, the light bulbs of the streets, et cetera. They're crazy, right, was the subtext. And we've gotten calls and emails. Uh, people have been vitriolic. Some of the hate mail we've received, some of the phone calls we've received over the past few days, uh, I assume because of the Slate piece and, and one or two uh, viral tweets uh, that have gone uh, viral within the pro-abortion sphere uh, that have just been beating up on Americans United for Life and upon Catherine Glenn Foster uh, because, you know, uh, they, they, that's what they exist to do, uh, to beat up on people. But, you know, when you dig into the claim, you realize that, uh, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, you can go back historically and look this stuff up. I mean, you do a Google search on uh, this practice um, you know, one of the things that I was amazed by was you can uncover, uh, you know, of, of all places, uh, to their credit, NBC News, NBCnews.com a few years ago reported their headline, Why Are Aborted Fetuses Burned? And the subhead, people have responded with outrage over the news that aborted fetuses were routinely burned in an incinerator in Oregon that used medical waste to generate electricity, unquote. So that was an NBC News piece. You know, uh, Americans United for Life uh, filed a, a brief in a case that I know you know well, Katie, uh, in 2018. This was AUL's legal brief in Indiana v. Planned Parenthood. And there's a, a phrase that, that was in that brief where we point out that, quote, without regulations, medical practitioners are free to dispose of human fetal remains by incineration with medical waste, by dumping in landfills, and even by burning the remains to generate energy. Now, again, even knowing all that, it's still you think, is this an outrageous claim? How could this be? But let's just take a moment and think through this very rationally, okay? Where do we think our waste goes? I'm talking about waste, broadly speaking. What are the implications then of abortion businesses not only being allowed to kill and to dismember just as a standard business practice, but then to dispose of human remains, all of their victims, precisely as medical waste. What do you think happens to our medical waste? And what are the troubling implications 
for Americans, frankly, in every state, in every jurisdiction, in every town, anyone nearby abortion businesses? What are the implications of the Department of Energy's promoted waste-to-energy initiatives? If abortion businesses can treat the remains of their victims, of human persons, as medical waste, what does that mean? You know, if Planned Parenthood and abortion businesses are like the Death Star, answering these questions in your states and towns uh, leads to that Death Star's, uh, you know, uh, thermal exhaust port, the thing that blows apart abortion as an industry, because abortion businesses need this kind of medical disposal, this kind of incineration that doesn't always, but sometimes does lead to literal energy generation. They need it. They can't operate without it. Funeral homes don't want the sort of human remains that Planned Parenthood generates. They don't want to be implicated. So, you know, I would just kind of leave listeners with those questions. We've been asking ourselves these questions for years, as I think our 2018 brief uh, underscores. And and this has been in the news for years, as the NBC news piece highlights as well. I think discovering the answers in, you know, your state, in your town, uh, will take you down some probably dark and unpleasant paths. Um, But darkness always ends with new light. And so, like, these are questions that need to be asked, and they need to be answered everywhere. Katie, what do you make of of all this? This is the kind of thing that people just don't want to know about. They don't don't want to think think about about it. If you, you know, if you're in the hospital, if you have an outpatient surgery, even if you go to like the dentist office, you know, the paper that's got your, you know, the stuff between your teeth at the dentist, it goes into a different trash can because it has human fluid on it. And so it needs to be disposed of differently. And you don't think twice about where that goes because it's the gross stuff between your teeth at the dentist. But what if the business is an abortion clinic? Are we going to treat the remains, which are human, which are young humans, but they are human remains. They are not pieces and parts. They're not, you know, an appendix from a surgery, but a whole human, even if dismembered. Are we going to treat it like a human or are we going to treat it like trash, like medical waste, like the stuff between my teeth on the paper at the dentist? Those are the two options. And we don't like to think about it and we don't like to talk about it. And most of the time when it's not a human being, it doesn't matter. I don't really care where the tissue goes, but when it is a human being, how could it not matter more? And when you think about, you know, this is going to an electrical plant to be burned for fuel. Is that the kind of world that we are willing to live in? But this is happening more places than it isn't. And I think we can assume, especially when we read things like it's cheaper to burn medical waste than to cremate people, we can assume that if states aren't banning this, then it's probably happening. And I think we should get our elected officials and the representatives from these companies on the record about it. Yeah, there's no doubt, right? And I think part of the the furor that you know you see from pro-abortion folks uh, about Catherine's testimony in light of this too, part of it is coming from the fact that, especially as we enter what looks like it's going to be not just a post-Dobbs, but a post-Roe environment culturally, pro-abortion activists are not used to be challenged in their citadel, right? They're not used to be challenged 
uh, being challenged on their own turf. Uh, Washington, D.C., I think, Katie, I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong, I think D.C. is probably the most pro-abortion jurisdiction in the country, right? As a former D.C. taxpayer, I regretfully must agree with you. Yeah. And I mean, so it's like when you go into kind of the the, the, the heart uh, of their stronghold and challenge them on something that, as you say, right, is, is you know, you have to sort of assume that this is the norm unless proven otherwise. Actually, the proof, uh, you know, has to be shown uh, contrary. Uh, it's, it's such a difficult issue. People don't want to deal with it. Um, you know, AUL has a model bill, a human fetal remains law um, that, that we work with states to pass. Uh, and that has been passed in some places, right? Yeah, it was the law at issue in that Indiana case that you referenced at the top, um, which in that case, they found out that um, uh, human fetal remains were being driven from Missouri to a plant in Indiana and being burned in Indiana. And that that company actually had to pay a fine to the city of Indi- I think it was to the city of Indianapolis. It may have been to the state. But they were, they were fined because they were breaking the law by doing that. Um, Incredible. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you go back. We're not, we shouldn't spend too much time on this, but I think it's, it's such an important issue. Um, you know, the Fox News ran a piece a, a few years ago. This was just a little bit after the NBC News piece. Um, the headline is, Banned Abortion Video Leaked uh, Appears to Show Clinic Owner Advocating Burning of Fetuses. And you can go through this. This is a, um, I, I think it's a Detroit-based or, or Michigan at least based uh, abortion uh, business. And you know there was undercover video shot. And you know you hear this uh, this person, this abortion business practitioner, talking very openly. And I'll just read a, a short section of this because it's it's really I mean incredible. The, this person says the gar- quote the garbage disposal was the completely legal option which made me sick to my stomach because there were about 45 clinics in the Detroit metropolitan area and many of them were using garbage disposals. So I was busy, this abortionist says, contacting everybody that we have to stop, uh, quote, uh, unquote. And then you know, they say they were, they were saying, we can't be on the front page of the New York Times. You shouldn't be doing this, any of you, unquote. Uh, and then the, the abortionist continued saying, you know, their, their colleagues, this person is saying, quote, showed me like a 40-year-old law in the state of Michigan that said medical waste was fine to go in the sewer system. I couldn't really argue with them. And then incredibly, incredibly, this person goes on, this abortionist goes on to joke, saying, quote, we were really tempted to give them the fetus back, but of course we couldn't do that. We thought, we'll give it to everybody in a gift bag. They can take it home and figure out what to do with it. It's their pregnancy. Why is it our problem? Unquote. Oh, that's disgusting. Honestly, I think that the lesson is that there's usually a there there. If you think that you've seen the depths, you haven't. This is part of why abortion degrades everything around it. It makes everything worse. Everyone more coarse. It has been wreaking havoc on our society for 50 years, and we have to say enough is enough. Precisely, yeah. Because, I mean, you imagine the implications of that, Katie. I mean, you know, it's like uh, <laughs> only bad options, right? If, if, if uh, you're in a jurisdiction where this sort of thing isn't happening in incinerators, where it's not, uh, God forbid, actually being used for power generation, 
well, bad news. Maybe it's just being put in the sewer system. Maybe these human remains are being put in the sewer system. I mean, there's no, no good outcomes so long as abortion remains uh, something that the law remains indifferent to or supportive of. And so in a post-Roe environment, uh, states that we anticipate like California, like Illinois, like New York, that lean further into pro-abortion activism, that go way beyond Roe, uh, they need to be confronted and challenged with the moral case, the ethical case for the wrongness of this. And oftentimes, Katie, people who want to defend abortion will try to trip up pro-life advocates with you know uh, the hard circumstances, the hardest circumstances. Representative Jamie Raskin, who's a Democrat uh, right here near D.C. in Maryland, he was there at the hearing with Catherine. Uh, and of course, he's, he's pro-abortion. He spoke about that at length. Uh, and then he you know, raised just such a tragic cir- circumstance, uh, the circumstance of abortions of, of cases of, in cases of rape and incest. Um, let's listen to his question and how Catherine handled that right now. This is an illuminating hearing, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the Republicans' own witness, the witness they called, is candidly, and openly calling for a nationwide ban on all abortions with no exceptions for rape or incest. And if I've got that wrong, I would invite Ms. Foster to correct me. Do I have it wrong, yes or no? Um, If we added rape and incest exceptions, would you vote for it? Uh, Okay, I reclaim my time, of course. All right, Katie, Uh, first, just to help unpack us, what does that mean when he says, I reclaim my time? Uh, well, he clearly was flustered with what she said. He thought that she would hem and haw and say, you know, these are hard cases. Whatever he thought she was going to say is not what happened. And he was not ready to answer the question that was pointed right back at him. I think it, it became kind of funny because he catches himself when he starts to say, of course not, which we know is the answer. Right. Anyone who's asking that question in bad faith, their answer is, of course not. And... You know, of course, if we added rape and incest exception back in, if we said, well, in those circumstances, the child's less of a child and and we're going to do it. And we didn't hold our ground on the humanity of every unborn child, even those who are born and conceived in horrific circumstances. You know, if we could get him on board, we'd talk about the conversation, but we can't. He's trying to catch Catherine in you know, a moment where she may say something that she regrets. And instead, he's the one who ended up tongue-tied. It was, yeah, it was an incredible moment. You know, a a, a clip of that um, has been going viral online. Um, You know, it's it's earned over a million views. I know it's energized the the pro-life community. Uh, I think it's done so precisely because both uh, Representative Raskin and Catherine's response, kind of her posture to him in, in response uh, encapsulates, you know, one of the classic gotcha attempts on the conversation about the human right to life. People uh, who favor abortion immediately go to this line of uh, argumentation, just as you say, not because that they, not because they seek kind of any common ground on the issue, not because they want to say like, let's get to a, a law we can support or a way that we can resolve this issue that satisfies the, the moral concerns about the, the denial of the human right to life uh, for those impacted directly by abortion, both mothers 
as well as fathers and whole communities, and of course the children themselves who are at the heart of every abortion. Um, right, as Catherine said at her testimony, even President Biden in recent remarks, uh, I'm sure Planned Parenthood would say inartfully, but we would say correctly, said that it was, quote, a child, unquote, at the heart of every abortion. You know, when even President Biden can acknowledge that reality, we all should be able to as a starting point to resolve the issue. And so, yeah, when somebody immediately goes to the most tragic uh, and emotionally loaded circumstances of, of these hard cases, it's a sign, first, uh, that they're not engaging in good faith. And if you're not engaging in good faith, I think Catherine's intuition of where to go with that was, was to turn it around, uh, not, not to demean him, not to even have a gotcha moment per se, but to ask. I mean, that's a good faith question. You know, it's like, you want to talk about that? Let's talk about what would get you to middle ground, to the ground that Americans would broadly support. Would you vote for something that didn't have this thing that you object to? And he won't even answer, right? It, it he shows, started to answer. Well, right. He started, <laughs> yeah, if fair. you listen to it closely, he, sa- he starts to say, of course not. And he catches himself. But that is the answer. Of course he wouldn't. Because for him, that's not going to be enough. And so, and the reclaiming my time thing, right? This is like parliamentary procedure. That he's just, he just means like he's sort of cutting Catherine's mic off, so to speak, so he can continue to speak, right? Yeah, it's, uh, he, he is an attorney and it was a very attorney caught with a question I don't want to answer move. And then he just jumps right back into his prepared talking points. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, it's funny. We had a, a, another uh, congressperson, I'm forgetting who this was. I don't know if you remember, uh, who quoted at length from a video that Americans Center for Life released actually the morning of uh, the, the Dobbs leak. We didn't know it was coming, but it was, uh, it was you know, fortuitously timed in the video um, where we lay out our vision uh, for a post-Roe America as one where we can all thrive. He quoted this at length. I think, I don't know, like if his staffers were, were green or what the deal was, but like he quoted it as, as if it was a gotcha moment. You know, so he's quoting lines from, from our video uh, on a post-Roe America to the effect of, you know, like, uh, you know, Ms. Foster, uh, is it true in your video that you say that, uh, you know, you want the killing to stop? Is that true? You know, and Catherine's sort of <laughs> sitting there like, you know, almost like, is this or is this the really the question you're asking? Right. Um, and I don't know whether that just shows that that he or his staff were out of touch or that they didn't quite do their homework or what. But it's like that that moment, I don't think achieved what he thought it would achieve. Um you know, most people want the killing to stop. That's the the mainstream position on abortion. Yeah, it was interesting. He would even use a word like killing since to him, that's not what it is. But we know that the reality is there and it is killing. It's intentional killing. That's what an abortion is. Precisely. Right. And yeah, and, and in using that word, he was quoting from our video. And so that's an example, right? It's like you would think that if he were trying to make whatever point he wanted to make, he would have sort of um, obfuscated our language somewhat. But he didn't, um, to his credit, frankly, because I'm glad he shared uh, the news about that video. If you haven't seen it, of course, this is not a video podcast, unfortunately, but you should look it up. Uh, visit AUL.org slash Dobbs, D-O-B-B-S. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes here. And you can watch that video. Uh, where we talk about thriving in a post-Roe America. We invite you to come alongside us to join in our mission. Uh, of course, you know, I got to say, if you haven't done so yet, you should make a one-time gift or, or sign up as a monthly recurring donor to support our mission. This is a time when all pro-life missions are under uh, assault. 
They're under attack. This moment, this is a pivotal moment in American history uh, with the Supreme Court's impending decision, with the courage that it seems like it's about to take. We're at an inflection point, I think, in American history. Uh, and this means that all pro-life missions uh, need to uh, come together uh, and, and to build for the future and to help ensure that lawmakers and judges and politicians in the executive branch and governor's mansions and elsewhere uh, continue to do the necessary and even harder work post-Roe of making sure that everyone's supported. Everyone needs to be supported. The last comment I think I have on the hearings in light of all this that I thought was so telling was something we mentioned near the top of the conversation of the abortion practitioner who was asked, I think it was by, by Representative Johnson, pro-life member, uh, about uh, how, how late they perform abortions. And she said, well, 20 weeks, and because 20 weeks is the legal limit in her state. Um, and she said, uh, you know, I follow the law, right? So, of course, it's at 20 weeks. I thought that was uh, a very important moment to have on the record. An abortionist saying, I follow the law. Right, and now you may be saying, like, why? We have, of course, like, why is that an important thing? Well, we hear over and over again, right, that if Roe is reversed, if states are allowed to protect life, if we hope someday, whether through constitutional amendment or through future Supreme Court rulings or whatever, uh, that abortion is truly abolished nationwide as a cultural matter, as much as a legal matter of justice, people say, well, abortions are still going to happen, right? And that's sort of their argument to say that we shouldn't even bother to reverse Roe. We should just keep the status quo as horrible and unjust as it is because abortions are just going to happen anyway. And yet here we have an abortionist, a woman who performs abortions up to 20 weeks, saying, of course I'm not going to do anything that's outside the letter of the law. I thought that was an interesting moment. Didn't you, Katie? I did too. You know, I think uh, it certainly showed that laws have an effect that they matter i hope that that's still true you know alabama the state where she practices medicine has passed a law that would prevent virtually all abortions they hope to be able to enforce that very soon if uh, dobbs overturns roe v wade and so that would you know take her out of the abortion business unless she moved to another state uh, that is our goal right <laughs> is to take people out of the abortion business and so I think, you know, to hear her say, I don't plan to break the law, it does show that state laws have an impact, that doctors care about their medical licenses. I think, you know, we've got this whole other enormous problem of these pill mill websites selling chemical abortion drugs. But if doctors feel like there will be consequences to their license, to their livelihood, if they violate the law then they're not going to do it, or most of them will not do it. And that is a good thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, Babylon B, which if, you know, I, I know you know Babylon B, Katie, but if uh, if anybody's listening who doesn't know Babylon B, hilarious. <laughs> you should. <laughs> satire site, you know, Twitter and all the the, the regime uh, approved outlets, I'm sure will let you know in big, big disclaimers, this is satire, this is false. Uh, of course, it's satire. It's just like the onion, right? Um, but the Babylon B ran a piece a few weeks ago, kind of uh, joking. It was something to the effect of the headline was something like, uh, you know, abortionist concerned uh, that they may have to become one of those quote unquote good doctors uh, if Roe <laughs> is reversed. Uh, you know, and that's that's really what it comes down to. Right. Because like, as you say, you know, it's not just about helping 
uh, take abortion doctors out of the abortion business, but it's about helping steer them toward genuinely life-affirming and authentic medicine, right? Uh, I mean, you look at, I mean, the hard cases of somebody like uh, Kermit Gosnell in Philly, right, or, or an Ulrich Klopfer out in the Midwest, um, it, abortion by its nature, because it is uh, malicious killing and, and harming, that act, uh, you know, human beings are moral creatures. Um, I know some people have difficulty like distinguishing uh, morality and moral questions from like theological or religious. A lot of people like sort of think they're the same. Uh, they're not. Like when we say like you're a moral creature, it means that you are, are, you know, as a human being unique in the universe, the known universe, certainly the known world, as a creature who can act for reasons, right? We're not just acting out of impulse. We're not just acting based on instinct. We can discern, we can decide, we can, we can debate, and we can then act with reason. And, and it's that acting with reason or for reasons that, that makes us moral, right? That's why we say that every action is a moral act. There's moral content to it, even if it's not a big act, right? Even if it's not a, a major, you know, contentious issue. Um, and so all those aspects of how you live uh, impact our moral psychology and shape us. And just as, as we can be shaped in positive directions, we can kind of be shaped upward. We can also shape ourselves in negative ways. Uh, we can sort of build ourselves into a particular type of, of moral person. Uh, and in a particular type of, of moral existence and universe. Um, and, you know, so the, the repeated act of anyone who performs abortions, I mean, you think of somebody like Dr. Bernard Nathanson, um, you know, who's no longer with us, but Dr. Nathanson was, you know, sort of the, the first major abortion practitioner. He performed thousands of abortions, and then he saw the light. And he became one of you know the most powerful and impactful pro-life advocates that this country has ever seen, and inspired others, right? Like Dr. Anthony Levitino, uh, in a similar state, former abortionist who's who's seen the light on the human right to life. We want more abortionists to follow that path, right? It's a good path. Uh, it 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 helps shape us and uplift us, um, and and all of us, right? Who uh, are there, whether. You're listening to this, and whether you're pro-abortion or whether you're listening to this as a pro-life American, a proudly pro-life person uh, who has maybe friends or family who are indifferent or who maybe are unfortunately pro-abortion, you know, this issue really gets at the heart of who we are as people. That's why it matters so much. That's why it hasn't gone away since 1973. It's why, Katie, you've seen it in the States where you've worked for so long, where you work with state lawmakers, where you work with advocates for life on the grassroots level, where you build momentum. You've done such a great job of that here at Americans United for Life. I know we've worked together now here for three years. It's been powerful. It's been impactful. It's been so good. You've done so much good. Um, but Katie, I know that you're about to embark on your next chapter, so we should probably talk about that. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Well, thank you for that windup. Um, I... I'm so, it's so bittersweet to say, but I will be, um, you know, le I've already left Washington, D.C. Literally, I moved um, to, to Florida a year ago. 
but now I am rhetorically leaving Washington, D.C. <laughs> because I'm jumping fully into state work and I'll be a state policy director for Susan B. Anthony List, which is one of our fellow pro-life organizations. So I will be um, fully focused on the fight for life in the states, uh, which I think, you know, if we get the opinion that we hope for in Dobbs and if Rose overturns later this summer, the states are going to be the biggest area of play for us to affirm life and to stand and walk alongside uh, moms and babies and families. And so I'm going to be doing that full time. Yeah, that's so phenomenal, Katie. We're so pumped for you. You know, we're, of course, huge fans of SBA List. Um, you know, all, all of the national pro-life organizations, there's a number of us. Um, it, the pro-abortion folks will often hold us up, right, as if uh, we're these, you know, big, you know, it's, it's like big corporate money, right, trying to take away your rights or whatever. That's the, the framing, um, the anti-pro-life <laughs> framing. But it's like, you know, I think about all this in the context of like SBA list, I think, is probably the biggest in terms of, uh, of, of what they can bring to the table in terms of their budget and in terms of, of, of what they're able to do through that in terms of having such a great team, making such a great impact. You know, SBA list is on the... Um, uh, on the kind of electing politicians and, and doing a lot of that great 501c4 work. Um, and we're, you know, here at Americans United, uh, in a very complimentary way uh, to each other. We're, we're about empowering and equipping those politicians. And so you're really in a sweet spot there in terms of, of both what you have done over these years at Americans United for Life and what you're going to be doing at, at Susan B. Anthony List. But like even right with, with that context of knowing these great pro-life groups, you see that headline a few weeks ago, of uh of, of what was it uh uh, uh jeffrey bezos's uh, ex-wife who donated like yes. 275 275 million dollars to planned parenthood uh i saw that headline and i mean you know like i it, it just blew my mind because i think like that kind of money is like almost quadruple what all of the pro-life groups nationally combined would have as an annual budget in one year. And she just kind of parachutes it into Planned Parenthood. And I mean, Planned Parenthood was already big, like in, in the billion dollar, like Planned Parenthood is as big as, you know, like, I mean, the city of Philadelphia's budget, last time I looked a couple of years ago, was something like $4 billion. Uh, Planned Parenthood ain't far off from that. So, you know, it's like, when we talk about the scope of these things, this is a David and Goliath fight, right? That you're going, that you've been in here at American Center for Life, and that you're going into at Susan B. Anthony List. That's so right, but you know what? Despite that enormous gift and all the other huge gifts and all the hundreds of millions of dollars that Planned Parenthood affiliates take from the federal government every year, which we are going to be working harder than ever to stop, we are still winning. Life is winning in the states. The people's hearts haven't changed. They're more open to our message. I know Lila at Live Action recently had a piece where they talked about the on-the-ground work that they do, where they show people videos of what the abortion procedure looks like. And they said, when people see what an abortion really is, what it does, how it works, they want no part of it. Their minds are changed. And so... All of us for the past 50 years have done a million different things to advance the cause of life inch by inch. And people are with us. Way more people are with us than a donation like that would, would make you think. And that's why it drives these giant corporate abortion interests crazy that we're winning. Because 
no amount of money. You cannot throw any amount of money at something that people just don't want. <laughs> like voters yes. still get to decide what the policies of this country are going to be. And they don't want what they're being sold, even $200 million at the time. Yeah, no, that's so right. I mean, this is this is just such an issue and such a moment in American history. Uh, it's it's going to be so great to work with you um, at, at Susan B. Anthony List. Uh, we certainly uh, applaud everything you're going to be doing there, and, and we're going to want to stay in touch. Um, it's it's really good. You know, it's like you hate when anybody leaves a team because you've been such an integral and dynamic part of the American Center for Life team. You've driven us forward uh, in the states, but through government affairs broadly at the federal level working with good pro-life leaders in Congress and helping advance this, uh, this life-giving agenda. And it's part of the reason it's winning uh, is because, you know, Katie, you're such a winsome personality. Um, and so, you know, while we're sorry to, to see you leave, I'm really glad on a personal level that you're going to stay in the fight for life uh, with a similar mission. So thanks for that. <laughs> well, I've, thank you. I've got one question for you. Yeah, please. Uh, will, if you bring me back on the podcast, will my streak stay alive or <laughs> am I going to have to start over because I have a new title? You know, Katie, it resets. Unfortunately, it's going to oh, reset. No. Okay. You know, you, uh, you, you set the standard for us first in, in uh, number and quality of appearances, uh, over the show's life, but, uh, also you're setting this standard now in terms of the rule that I just created. So <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good. But, um, yeah, it's, it's so good, Katie. So thanks again. Um, it's, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. I, I looked up by the way, as we were speaking, cause I, I knew it was funnier than I than I said it was. The Babylon Bee headline. You ready for, ready for it? Abortionist worried he may have to become one of those doctors uh, that helps people. <laughs> you know, this great image of like a kind of a stock photo of a doctor with his fur, a brow furrowed, kind of staring down at some paperwork. So very funny piece, uh, worth looking up. But um, yeah, think about how many families we could help with two hundred million dollars. How many? Two hundred seventy-five million. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How how many material supplies that would buy? How many women and families we could help with rent assistance, with education assistance, with childcare, all of the different things to help families that pregnancy centers are doing all over this country. What we could do with two hundred million dollars, and instead it's going to pay to wave signs outside of the Supreme Court to elect pro-abortion politicians and to pay for abortions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're, you're making me, th I didn't plan to, to mention this, but you know, your comments are just made me think of Catherine's great uh, comment at one point uh, in response to a question from, I think it was representative Owens, I think uh, pro-life yes. member. Uh, mm -hmm. She said, she said, go ask Planned Parenthood if they provide diapers, formula, a crib, rent assistance, food, bill assistance, counseling, mammograms, or continuing education. And then come and tell me that pro-lifers are the ones that don't care for children after they're born. She said, give me a break. I mean, amen, right? It's like, that's that's what it's all about. Like that that kind of money, that $275 million gift or the larger like multi-billion dollar budget of an organization like Planned Parenthood, just Planned Parenthood, not Center for Reproductive Rights or not any, you know, you know NARAL or any of these others, just one of them. And then you compare it to the total budget of an organization like Americans United for Life, we're at about $3 million. We have a lot of ambition to grow. Uh, you look at some of our other, I mean, March for Life, right, who's been doing this, this iconic witness in Washington, D.C. every year that's been expanding in the states, doing great state marches at state capitals. They're right about the same, about $3 million. The impact that we're able to have with comparatively 
such modest funding from grassroots Americans, from people from all ages, backgrounds, and beliefs, by the way, is incredible because of the moral resonance, because of the justice of the issue we fight for, right? And so it's just like you say, all the money in the world uh, can't buy victory for something that isn't right. Yeah, I, I tell I tell the lawmakers we work with all the time, you know, I'm here to advise you, I can tell you what the landscape looks like, but ultimately I don't get a vote. I'm not an elected official in this state. And Planned Parenthood and these huge abortion interests are finding out the hard way as they try to get into state politics, something that they've pretty much avoided because they've been so focused on D.C., that they don't get a vote either. <laughs> they have to go out and persuade people. And what they are selling isn't very attractive to a lot of people. And, you know, there have been some really bad laws that have passed this year, no doubt. But there have also been some really great pro-life laws in states that haven't always, uh, you know, been kind of our star, top star states like Florida, where I live, where we are now going to be limiting abortion to 15 weeks, which is a whole lot better than the 24 weeks that we were at, you know, the year before. So we are winning in lots of ways and lots of places and the other side sees it and it terrifies them. But the only thing they know to do is throw money at the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And vitriol too, right? I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, like, uh, one of the, one of the attacks that Catherine faced this week was from Keith Olbermann. Uh, he tweeted out, you know, uh, he said, quote, uh, she's either, uh, an expletive liar or completely out of her mind, unquote. And now, you know, if you follow, I mean, I hope you don't, but if you follow Keith Olbermann, you know, you kind of realize that's kind of par for the course. Um, he's got like... Are those the only two choices, liar or crazy? I mean, if you don't like what someone's saying, I guess, I you guess. know, but it's it's, uh, it's still a shame to see the vitriol. But, you know, it it, it raises, as kind of you're saying, um, and as Catherine mentioned, in terms of like all of these things that you can't get from Planned Parenthood because none of them are really about choices, they're about giving you one option and selling it to you. Uh, all of these things in a post-row environment will call for lawmakers at the state and at the federal level to build a culture where we can all thrive. That might sound like, you know, like a marketing language or something, like a culture where we all thrive. And it's it's kind of good, right? It's it's good marketing language. It's it's it, it is that's an appealing vision, I think. It certainly is for me. I would like everyone to thrive. Um, but it speaks to a uh, tripartisan reality, which is what is the thriving of the entire American people look like? You know, it's the idea of the common good, not the greatest good, not a utilitarian sense of the good of the sort that abortionists would peddle, where they say, we're going to work for the greatest good. So, you know, we're going we're gonna to help a lot of people thrive. And then, you know, for some, uh, they'll kind of have to pay the price, you know, we're just going to have to kill some people, uh, but it's for the greater good. You know, no, I don't want a greater good. I want a common good, a good that we all share in. That's diffusive, that's non-rivalrous, right? That that's participatory for everyone. Uh, this this common good phrasing, it's an ancient idea, but it's at the heart of the tripartisan, or maybe we should say postpartisan politics of a post-row environment. Because it gets at, well, what are we going to do for one another? Right? Just as on the conservative side where folks might go to the power of, of families or, or private industry or whatever. Those are good things. But that's not the only thing we can do, right? Law and policy and government has a role to play because 
You know, that's one of the few things I think, uh, you know, when it came to life issues, certainly, that President Obama really got right, that in a certain sense, government, to paraphrase, you know, it's just a word for the things we do together. Well, that's what it's supposed to be. You know, I don't know if that's what it is today, but that's what it was supposed to be. And, you know, when we think about this idea of the common good, where we can all thrive, well, that is a place where all of these divisions, you know, what our friend uh, Dr. Charlie Camosi calls the false binary, it melts away in a post-Roe environment. So if you're a state lawmaker, a federal lawmaker, or if you're just a regular person like me or Katie, and you're trying to be you know, a good person who's making a good impact, you don't need to, to de- decide you know, whether you have an R or a D or an I or a whatever after your name in terms of party registration to figure out how can we come together in our community to build real options for one another. Is my neighbor struggling Is my friend sort of suffering? Is somebody in my family feeling alone and isolated? Am I even aware of it? Right? And in a post-Roe environment, these questions take on such an urgency, especially in states where abortion, where the killings, where the poisoning, where the fatalities and the hurts are going to continue and in fact even get worse. It's in states like those that, that we need, you know, your work, Katie, all the more, right? Yeah, I think there is, you know, there's the the law textbook side of it with the, the legislatures and the courts, and there's the heart side of it with everything that we can do within our communities and showing kindness to our neighbors and supporting our local pregnancy centers And all of it is important. And I think that law and policy is so important. And that's why Americans United for Life has just been, you know, integral to getting us to this point where Roe may actually be overturned this summer. And we hope it is, is because the right to abortion was created in our Constitution and this messaging and this belief and this trans about how now abortion is good and you should shout it. All of that came from Roe. You know, companies wouldn't say we're going to add to our benefits that we'll pay for you to fly to some other state for abortion if it wasn't this fundamental right in the Constitution. And I wonder how that may change if it no longer is. They've put so much into the idea that this is a fundamental right in the Constitution. And I don't know what they're going to rely on once it's not. Yeah, and it raises exactly those things, right? And this is why it's not just a personal issue. It's not just a family or community issue, not just a corporate issue, uh, although you raise an important point there, right, about these companies that are defaulting, you know, to, to sort of embrace uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg's tragic logic. You know, he supposedly told a, a pregnant female employee years ago at his Ugh. firm uh, when he found out she was pregnant, he, you know, supposedly he just said, well, kill it. Um, you know, bec- in other words, you know, get rid of the child because you got to focus on your career. Uh, and that's mask a, that's an always slips, Tom. The mask always slips. Well, like does he even think he's out. wearing a mask? Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, you know, it's it's choice and it's empowerment and it's a, a clump of cells. The mask always slips. Yeah, it's a clump of cells, except, you know, if you're Joe Biden, who still has whatever, you know, the, the echoes in him. Right. Of, of the of the pre I don't know out of what year it would have been, you know, that it shifted really from something closer to a pro-choice environment on that side, you know, Bill Clinton's safe, legal, rare type idea to whenever that, that pivot point was where it really went into like, 
making the argument like, no, abortions are a public good, actually, um, which I think was really the end of of their of their project as this as this failed social experiment um, that's cost well, that's, so many lives. When it, when it became a good, that's when it all shifted. You know, we we want fewer people like if it's if it's this like bad but necessary medical thing which is how it was framed in the safe legal and rare days right like we want fewer people to need heart bypasses because we want them to be happier and healthier and not need that right we want fewer people to need abortions because this is a hard but necessary surgery that used to be the way they talked about it now now that it is good that you should shout about it it's a, a moral good to get an abortion and, and you can't pass judgment on that. Like now that they've completely taken it out of the realm of medicine, you need, there should be more abortions. And we see this, the California Future of Abortion Council has in their paper, in their uh, publications they've put out, they say that 1.4 million American women annually are going to come to California for abortions. That is wish casting by an industry trying to make more money. There are about 860,000 abortions in this country for the last couple of years. So they're hoping that increases by 40% because it will increase their bottom line. Katie, I mean, not just increased by 40%, right? And it's so outrageous, so outrageous, the idea of 1.4 million people coming to California. That's the national figure, isn't it? That 800,000? Yes. So as California is, is, is predicting, essentially, that abortion demand... Is going to explode. That people are going to be, you know, that, that they won't be able to wait to get one. That yes. that just one state will account not only for every abortion that happens today across the United States, but almost double that amount. Now, I think that's that, that's wild. I think that's that's nuts. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, wish casting is probably the most charitable way to put it. Uh, I, sh- <laughs> I should stick to that, Katie. You're you're right there. But uh, you know, but but I mean, what what is the magnitude, the scale they're talking about abortion in their mind? Uh, they, they think people really want it. They think it's, it's going to what number, grow to what number across the country? That number, 1.4 million, is higher than the high point of abortions in this country. So it's not when they say we won't go back, they would love to go back. They want to go back to the late 1980s when we were at 1.2 million. And they want to increase it from there because they know that they get the profit off of $600 per abortion. It's a business. It's about making money. If you want to lower something, you need to take the profit out of it. And and this is designed to make money. It's not medicine. And that's why it's got to be called good and moral and wonderful and everybody should do it. And you've got celebrities like Lena Dunham a few years ago who said she wished she'd had an abortion that is what it's about. It's not about helping moms and babies. It's about making money. Yeah, I mean, you reminded me too of one of the um, the messages. Uh, and yeah, by the way, it's like as if as if you know, it's like what you make your uh, you make your plan. It's like we're going to go to Anaheim uh, for Disneyland, and we're going to stop by the Planned Parenthood. I mean, it's like what what is what is the? It's it's like you know, these people are getting high on their own supply. I think at Planned Parenthood or wherever else they're coming up with these ideas. But um, setting that aside, I mean, it's it's reminding me too of. One of the, the just, you know, the more vile uh, comments that I know Catherine received that we've received at American Center for Life that was intended for Catherine uh, that, that came across my desk, um, which was, you know, to the effect of a person saying, you know, you guys are right. Abortion is killing a person. And I wish your mom had killed you. Uh, that's the kind of thing. That's that's one of the lighter comments we receive, by the way. You know, uh, this is this is the moment we're in and the vitriol that stirred up. It's just it's a it's a terrible time from that standpoint because we see 
the 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 rough impact this is having in in stirring up division uh, and, and not just division but but hatred and and anger and the anxiety yeah, I, we got to overcome just, it just in case any of the people who left me a mean voicemail today are listening yeah, I know you're getting really, them too, Katie. Really That's right. I'm grateful for our transcription services, so I don't have to listen to your voicemail. I can read it, and I've now learned how the transcription spells all the four-letter words. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you will not stop us. You will not scare us out of doing this work. It is so important, and so please don't call me, but if you do, it is not having any effect, and I think I can speak for our whole team when I say that. No, it's true. It's true. It's reminding me of uh, something funny. I know Wesley J. Smith, we've had on the program, talked about, you know, he wrote kind of his first piece that uh, that popped. This was kind of before he really waded into the pro-life issues. He didn't consider himself a pro-lifer at the time. This was in the 80s. And he wrote a piece uh, that appeared in Newsweek magazine at the time. And Newsweek was like a big, you know, it's like Life magazine back in the day. Newsweek was in a lot of homes, millions of homes. And he wrote it uh, about uh, euthanasia and about um, suicide. Uh, and he wrote about it in the context of a, a friend of his, a dear friend in California. Um, she killed herself uh, as a result of of suicide propaganda from um, the group that today calls itself Compassion and Choices. Uh, it was called the the Hemlock Society at the time, a more honest name. Um, and you know this this obviously spoke to his heart, right? This is a friend who was suddenly no longer there, hadn't spoken to him about what she was going to do, um, but she had the literature at her home that, that described, you know, how to do this terrible thing to yourself that had, you know, like their logo on it and all that. And, and Wesley wrote about that in Newsweek thinking like, this is a big story that everybody needs to know about. Mm-hmm. And he remembers, he remembers getting hate mail uh, for it of people being like, no, it's good that she did this. And, you know, you are so uncaring and unthought, you know, you're thinking only about yourself type of thing. Uh, and he remembers, he says, like, I was amazed by this because like, this was an era when you had to pay to send hate mail. Like you literally, you had to have a pen, <laughs> a paper, an envelope, and you had to, you had to buy a stamp and put it in the mail, <laughs> send it. Right. So he's like the, even just the number of people sending these was an indicator. Like this is some vitriol, right. Motivating this. Yeah. These are people paying to send this to me. Uh, and so even though today, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, in such a direct way cost anything for people to call us or to leave us a voicemail or to send us an angry tweet or whatever. Um, the people, you know, calling us, I mean, I'm getting these same calls, Katie. Uh, they're coming into AUL's main line. I'm sure they'll die down in a week or so. But, uh, you know, a lot of these people who are leaving these voicemails with just the most vile stuff, and I'm thinking like, you know, you're giving us MP3s, right? Like it's it's in my, in my Outlook inbox here. Uh, so... You know, I'm like sort of tempted to do a bizarro world episode of Life, Liberty, and Law where we just hear from some of these folks who've been ginned up by pro-abortion activists um, because it's like you almost wouldn't believe uh, that this is out there if you didn't hear it. Um, so but anyway, we leave that aside. Katie, I know, you know we're, we're coming to a close here. I wish we weren't, but we're coming to a close on the show here. Uh, your finale uh, with Americans United for Life. I wonder if you uh, care to reflect at all um, kind of on either, you know, one of the, the highlights for you of your time at Americans United for Life, or, you know, I'd be curious to hear, um, you know, what you think kind of one of the greater challenges is, um, you know, as in, in terms of the role you're heading into, in terms of helping states and helping lawmakers um, as we are on the verge of kind of writing this next chapter in the, the story of America's quest for justice on the human right to life. 
Yeah, you know, I think um, I've gotten to travel to so many places and, you know, meet just incredible, awesome people. And the thing about the state work that's so different from, you know, being in, in D.C. and Congress where, you know, members can be totally down to earth, but they're just insulated with the stuff and the bubble and the whole thing, you know, with state lawmakers, like you'll, you'll call their home phone. You'll talk to their spouse. Like, you know, about their family. Um, it's just a different level. That's so humane. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's part of why I love local governments (laughs) so much because people aren't, they, it's harder to forget that these people are your neighbors and, and often your friends. And, and so there's, I think just much more of a community, uh, level of lawmaking that you get when you actually know these people and you're going to see them again, you know, which is something that I think when we saw some of the shots back and forth across the dais on Wednesday in Catherine's hearing, you know, all these members, some of them are friends, but some of them never talk to each other. They've never met. And so they don't see each other as human. So I've really enjoyed that. And I think I'll, I'll get to do a lot more of that kind of community building in my new role. Um, you know, one of the things I'm really proud of that we did at AUL is last summer in this Dobbs case, we filed two friend of the court briefs. And one of our briefs, I know we did an episode on it, uh, was on behalf of 228 members of Congress. And it was the first time that that many members had gone on the record in support of life in 40 years. The last time that that many, Incredible. Record, that many members did was 1980 in Harris v. McRae, the Title X case. The AUL uh, represented the house in. We weren't here, um, but AUL was. <laughs> I was, yeah. <laughs> I won't tell you where I was, but uh, I was not here. AUL was, that's right. And uh, so this was the first time since then to have as many members uh, go on the record as being pro-life. But even be- beyond that, um, to have that many members say we want to overturn Roe versus Wade. This is the first time that so many members have stood united against Roe and saying it's time. It is finally time to do this. And it was so humbling to get to be a part of that and to get to work on that uh, that brief and, and getting all those members signed on. And I think, you know, now as we get so close, we have to remind ourselves we asked for this. So when we get those mean calls when we're working long nights, you know, we asked for this. We asked That's the court right. to overturn Roe. And so if they do it, we've got to just run with it. That's right. That's right. We need courage on the Supreme Court, and we're going to need courage for anyone who steps into American public life on this issue. You see, I mean, you see doing the work that we do, Katie, why so many Americans, I, I empathize, uh, why so many folks are kind of reluctant to state a public position, you know, on this issue. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, they see the consequences, right? I remember that Gallup poll from a few years ago, very tellingly, uh, that asked, uh, I thought, a, a key question, which was like, how many people do you think are pro-life and pro-choice? Uh, and then it was like, and, and what are you? And so the, the two data points, by contrast, it was like, at the time, um, I, I think it, this was 2013, I think, but at the time, it was either like equal or there were just slightly more pro-lifers uh, than pro-choicers in terms of identification. Mm-hmm. And, and yet... The other question, people thought there were about 50% of the country was pro-choice and about 35% identified as pro-life. So even though, you know, at least half identified as pro-life, they thought they were 
in the minority by far. They thought that there was only maybe like a third of Americans were pro-life or something. And that's part of the, the game that we're in is combating that kind of uh, information warfare uh, and, and sort of the same kind of intimidation tactics that we saw at House Judiciary Committee where uh, there's kind of a desire to either explicitly or implicitly say, you should just keep your mouth closed if you don't think like I think. And that's not the kind of America we want. And it's not the kind of America that certainly here we're building for and that I know you're going to continue to build, Katie. So thank you so much for everything you're going to be doing and that you have done. Thanks, Tom. Katie, you know, this is our last shot of gratitude. (laughs) We haven't done it on every episode, but basically every episode. Uh, We've talked about so much we're grateful for. Uh, Can I put you on the spot? Uh, I, I, I'll go first, actually. Uh, I'm grateful. Uh, I, we, I joked with, with Noah about this when Noah Brandt was uh, still with us at America Center for Life and when we co-hosted so many of these great episodes together. Um, you know, going it alone now without him, but uh, it, it's still great to do these shows and to have these conversations. He would joke with me that apparently I would often state that I was grateful in some form or another for the weather. Right? You know, I would talk <laughs> I about like how nice it was going to be. Oh, you picked up on this too. Okay. Well, I guess, I guess I did. I guess I'm guilty of that. Um, but you know what, Katie, uh, I love the heat and I'm grateful for the weather this weekend in DC. It's going to be like 97 degrees tomorrow. Um, and, uh, and it's like a heat wave in May. You know, I wish I could live in Florida like you, Katie. Uh, I love the little town of Ave Maria, just a few hours South of Tampa. Uh, you know, just a couple hours from Miami. It's such a great part of the state. Uh, I love that kind of weather, that heat. You know, I think I like, you know, in, in another life or something, uh, silly to say, but you know, it's like, I wish I'd been born in Havana or something. Um, maybe not at this time in history, but, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of where I'm at in terms of the, the climate. So I'm grateful for the weather, but, but not just the weather, but because for me that opens up a whole range of possibilities. Uh, I got some ideas of, uh, of places to take my wife this weekend, uh, and uh, really looking forward to whichever of those plans unfolds. So, um, yeah, Katie, what are you grateful for? I love that you did say the weather because I thought of that. I am <laughs> <laughs> um, so grateful that I got to spend this week um, in Washington, D.C. with our awesome AUL team. Uh, you may not even know this, but 10 years ago, I started my first job in D.C. was in Rayburn House Office Building as an intern wow. on the Hill. I didn't and know that. So to have... My kind of, you know, wrap up with AUL, my wrap up with the Hill as I go on to do fully state work to be there in Rayburn uh, was really special. And I got I got a little emotional. I didn't think I would. And Rayburn is uh, is one of these key buildings that's like kind of forms the whole Capitol complex where Congress operates. Right. Yes. Yeah. And um, we had uh, when I was there, my boss had one of the internal windows, which is a coveted office. Ah, why is that coveted? Well, for him, because he could smoke out the window. Oh, that's great. But, that's great. But in general, so the whole you other can era. Open your window. <laughs> yeah, right. I like open windows too because it leads to the weather. But <laughs> there we go. Anyway, Katie, such a pleasure. Uh, we're gonna miss you, but we're gonna be cheering you on. I'm sure we're gonna be working with you. So thanks for everything you're gonna be doing. Thanks. See you Tom. out there, Katie. All right, if you enjoyed our conversation today with Katie Glenn, Government Affairs Counsel at Americans United for Life, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast. You know the drill. Wherever you listen to the show, please rate it and leave a review. Let a friend know you've discovered life, liberty, and law. Till next time, I am Tom Shakely. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.